can go. We should be alive. Cool. All right, there we go. So do you think the boat was going to explode? <laughs> I thought I was going to die. You looked like the boat was going to explode. The boat was going to explode. We were in a sailboat in the middle of the bay with a metal rod. The mast is just a metal rod. Remember, and it was lightning. You remember when we thunderstorming. Were, you remember when we were going to leave the house and I said, hey, we should, we should take my car because I think it's going to rain. And I looked on... It's serious. And fault, you, said, really. you said, no, asked, no, no, it's not going to rain. It's serious fault. I asked Siri. Yeah, okay. Blame it on Apple. To I be know, fair, though, I know not to let you choose. To be fair, we didn't get rained anymore. We didn't get rained on when we were in the car. We got rained on when we were in the boat. And you, which you is went, the worst you, case scenario, right? But you the also worst case scenario. <laughs> you went undercover. You were you barely got any wet. I had to I had to sail the boat all by myself. I was wet, but like, what was I supposed to do? I was waiting for commands. No, the, the best captain. part is when we You're were the motoring. The, the best part is when we were motoring back and we ran out of fuel. <laughs> <laughs> and we were we were both so panicked that we were like completely forgot that we had a gas can <laughs> yeah, on the, the boat. <laughs> the random company had told us about the extra gas underneath the seat. <laughs> oh yeah, that was good. That was good. It was fun though. It was fun. I'm not gonna wake you up like a little. Hmm, I might die in this little sailboat. Well, I mean, we felt alive. Yeah. Okay. Well, what's going on in the world? Yeah. Let's move on. So. Do we, where do we want to start? We, I think this week we agreed we're going to discuss, we're going to do, uh, the China, the export ban, China chips, stuff going on, energy markets, a little bit, maybe on Ukraine, because that's impossible to get away from, and then the protests in Iran, where do we want to start? Do we want to do the, the feel-goody story of Iranian protests, or do we want to do the highly technical chips? I think we should do protest last because it's like a good. It's like it's like sad, but like a like a like a development that I like support. You know, right? Like I'm like rooting. No, I think it's an uplifting story. I mean, they're I mean, it's terrible some of the stuff that's happening, but I think the fact that they're pushing back, yeah, and the fact that they're trying to change things, yeah, I agree. Okay, let's start with the semiconductors. So in the China chip stuff. China chips. Okay, so let's start with so on October seventh. The Bureau of Industry can I, and Security. Can I frame it first? You want to give like a rundown before we go into no, this? No, I just want to. I just want to say this line that I read somewhere: the Chips Act that gave like fifty billion dollars domestically to U.S. semiconductor businesses. Okay. A couple months ago was the carrot in the U.S. becoming more and the U.S. decoupling their supply chains internationally. And what we're about to talk about is the stick. Is, is I think the like correct way to think about it. And the carrot and stick as directed towards what, like the American private. I think towards ship. No, I, I not private necessarily, but towards sector. where where and how semiconductors and ad, specifically the advanced ones that are like more concerning to national security, like supercomputer chips and AI focused chips. It's decoupling that from. So it's their places like China. It's their carrot and stick policy of it is yes the, the private sector, but also yes. with in conjunction with the public sector of moving chip dependency away from China, but also like we're not dependent in general. on yeah offshore in general. Yeah, because like trying to bring it in house much more. For example, eighty percent of those semiconductors um, are made in Taiwan, Taiwan by TSMC. TSMC, right? right. So yeah. not that and we like, dislike as we've TSMC over the last year. But we do want to like move that domestically and, and move some of and, and make sure that China doesn't have 
a monopoly or, or any any major control over the chip. And a lot of that is because COVID revealed how dependent we are on chip production capacities and the supply chains. Yeah. So well, I think even without COVID, we would have realized like. Well, I think it was like known, but it was just sort of a, like it was like it just made it very apparent, right? Mm-hmm. It was oh, you can't you you can't even get a new car. Because right, because no right, you know, exactly. so it's like, oh well, like that's like a very basic thing. That and and Xi Jinping need. and the Communist Party realizes too; they want to be the global leaders in technology by twenty thirty, and in these technologies like AI, which chip production is so essential to. So okay, so let's start. So yeah, the Bureau of Industry and Security, uh, which is underneath the Office of Congressional and Public Affairs, typical. No, American. it's under. Sorry, it's under the Department of Commerce. Okay, so it's a, it's a sub bureau. <laughs> it's a sub 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 because this is how the American government works. Right, where, exactly. You know, it's just a, a word soup of things. Anyways, the basic uh, the basis of this rule came out on October seventh. Is essentially it was export controls mm-hmm. on chips primarily to China or is it ju- is just China, right? Uh, I don't think yes, it had it was it was to the PRC. It was aimed at the PRC. Yes, which is partially what is going to make it inflammatory to them because it's like this export control to the chip technology is not for any other country in the world. It's just China. So it's going to feel very directed. And so the export control is limiting the chips that can go out to China. Is it just like some chips or what's the... So the way I understand it, right, because it's obviously a very technical thing, but um, the idea is to limit the sale of um, AI and supercomputing chips as well as the sale of manufacturing, the manufacturing equipment that helps them produce that, right? So technology that allows you to make those chips. And just right. just to like be clear, like when we say chips, what exactly do we mean here? Uh, so I think that's that's the part that's kind of like the gray zone right now because it is a lot of stuff we read, right? It's like how the Commerce Department enforces these regulations, right? How strictly they decide to enforce it. Yeah, so it might but not some companies be... have just paused, some American companies have paused operations, uh, specifically like chip manufacturing, uh, like the, the companies that sell the manufacturing technology and maintain the manufacturing technology in uh, the, the Chinese facilities, they've paused their operations as they kind of figure it out. But um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it really depends on how Commerce Department sort of like defines these because like at large chips is just generally what we discuss when we refer to like the silicon chips right, that are using like our computers yeah. or basically anything that uses any type of compute power, right? Like they power everything from your laptop to your car to the biotech, you know, biotech devices that are used in a hospital just across the board. Right. As reported in the Wall Street Journal, the so, rules cover the export of chip manufacturing equipment used to make Advanced memory chips, widely used in smartphones, personal computers, data servers, and other everyday devices. They also cover equipment used to make basic computing chips used in such devices such as PCs, as well as the export of the advanced chips themselves. In addition, um, it the restriction imposed... Other restrictions imposed include requiring U.S. chip makers to obtain a license to export chips used in artificial intelligence calculations and supercomputing. So yes, there's a certain like the cutting edge technologies, they're restricting those, the AI focused ones and the supercomputing focused ones, but they're also mm-hmm. like those basic, the manufacturing of those kind of basic chips that are in everyday devices. We're putting kind of a, the Cobra's type tightening on 
China being able to produce those themselves. I think the, I think the snake you were looking for is the Python. But. The Python, yep. That's <laughs> well, I should have known that too because that's the programming language. <laughs> but yeah, no, I think it's interesting because you, you have this sort of you have this angle where it's it's very strategic in that they're aiming for specifically the technologies that include what's this next evolution of tech, right? Like right. AI. We've seen so much stuff come out in the last year that's utilizing some type of AI, whether it's the GPT-3 stuff or DALI or Mm -hmm. what is it, stable diffusion, you know, like all of these things that very quickly are going to kind of probably change a lot of the ways that we do business and just go about in our daily lives. And I think it'll happen in the same way as social media where you just kind of sign up for a new thing and you're just kind of using it. And then you look back in two years and you're like, oh, whoa, like we did not do things like this before, right? Exactly, like, yeah. You know, but... And it's accelerating so quickly. But it's also just, yeah. like, the basic stuff, you know? Yeah. So I think I think what's interesting well, for us to consider is what's the, like, like, like why now? Like, why is, why is the U.S. doing this right now, right? Like, because likely people who are working on this stuff have recognized for several years now, at least since the Trump administration, right, that China was angling for this sort of technological supremacy. They wanted to be able to overcome and you know beat the u.s in terms of like technological development and also get to a point where they weren't reliant yeah i was, I was gonna say i think the tech, motivation right? is is yes they want to be superior but i think the motivation is more um negative based is that they they don't want to be some kind of like a technical technological fiefdom to because they realize the importance of this technology to everyday life and also not just their everyday life but all their um crowd monitoring and like um, the way that they control their citizenry, like the advanced with, police state that right, they created, exactly, is with this technology, and they don't want to be dependent on the U.S. or they don't want to be dependent on China mm-hmm. um, in some kind of technological dependency there. Um, and so, for them, in the, over the past ten years, Xi Jinping and others have made it a priority to develop this in-house and and be able to produce this domestically. And this attacks that development of that domestic production directly. So this puts a, a stop in their ability to do this themselves as to why the u.s is chosen now yeah that's i think the I interesting think, i don't know why like why I mean, like why why, why today right in now? 2022 like, you know, you know like, like also you're kind of stoking sort of like tensions right before an election is this a is there political motivations well, here like not just an election right does, but right before the the party congress they're, they're well I think let's go into that second. Let's let's talk about let's try to do like American motivations first, right? I think that's we can go there. Then we can talk about the Party Congress, because I think it's interesting. Right? Is like is the White House trying to get this sort of? They're trying to get them some brownie points by being like, oh, we're also tough on China. We're not acceding to. I don't. I know, don't think it's that. Do they even care? I I don't have any like sources or or like understanding there, other than my gut instinct is that. The development of this policy takes time, and this has been where the U.S. government and the U.S. and the Biden administration, but also previously the Trump administration, had started going. Where they and go. the development of these export controls, you know, on the legislative side, the side, the passes of the the Chips Act a couple of months ago. Like this is where the foreign policy establishment has been moving, and it's just taken time to develop this policy, and it's just coincidentally that it's happening in October of 2022. I don't I don't think it was planned. I don't think it was timed for anything other than it's after the, the carrot I talked about of of the Chips Act. 
because they they don't want to. I don't think it's the Biden just sort of the next step. They got it done when they could. This get is going to be right, and and honestly, this is going to hurt in the short term. Going to hurt U.S. companies financially, and you know, I think like one company is projected to lose four hundred million dollars as a direct result of these. Um, like the restrictions. Yeah, I mean that's that's not a non-trivial amount of money, and, and you know, it's a huge sector. It's multi-billion-dollar sector. Yeah, and right, a lot cause... of the growth is in China. So. I think this is intended as like, okay, we gave you your money to invest. We gave you huge subsidies to invest in America and kind of promote your businesses. And now we're going to have to do the, the negative aspect of that. Now we're going to essentially make you bring all of that money onshore. Right. So, or at least out of China. I think that that also brings us to a good point. The whole notion of there's not sort of this big overarching like master plan of like, well, we're going to do the CHIPS Act first to create the incentive. And then we're going to do these export controls and stuff because then what we're, we're following up with sort of an enforcement mechanism, right? It's just American policymaking is often kind of chaotic, right? Because you have so varying interests yeah. and people competing to get what they want and those sorts of things. It's very different than in like a closed authoritarian system like in China, which I think is important to consider because very top down. Yeah. Right. Like as, as you're saying, you know, maybe there isn't, some sort of larger structure and intention behind the timing of all of these things. But because of the fact that this is like sort of the aggressive stance here is now happening in what this is mid October, 2022. This is right on the crest of the beginning of the, what is the national party Congress conference? Is that what uh, it's called? National party or yeah, the party Congress. Yeah. Uh, and that's the five year meeting of the communist party of China. And it's where, Xi Jinping is expected as recording this on October 16th. So this is the opening day and I'm sure we'll do some time on the next pod, but Xi Jinping is expected to be reelected for the third term as the premier leader of China. Uh, you know, they're reelecting their, um, the Politburo, the Politburo and the standing committee of the Politburo. So the highest leaders, the ones who really control what goes on in China. And it's a big, it's a big affair politically for, yeah. for them. Yeah, but you're saying that in terms of timing, you think that the their leaders will see it as a concerted, like a, a, a planned maneuver that is happening right now. Yeah, I think right, right. I think we've talked about this before. The it's especially in the Chinese system, they struggle to because it's so different than ours. Just organizationally, politically, and culturally, they struggle to sort of understand the notion that you can have different parts of government doing things that are outside of say you know the president's Biden's discretion control, yeah. or direct leadership right like congress can pass a bill that's going after i don't know some random country in southeast asia and the president can be saying i don't like this i didn't want this done but from the chinese perspective right they because of how their system is set up they sort of view it as like oh well you know biden is the president is mm -hmm. you know the american version of I don't want to say like a direct one-to-one -one of like our, our leader, but they view things much more as like things come from like one central place I, of leadership, right? Like, I think about what like of saying is that they seek consensus and then move forward together is how they would probably phrase it. And whereas we are comfortable with competition and conflict between different branches and even within the same branch, different agencies of, of government. Yeah, right. Like you would never have a, say like a provincial leader in China be an open like vet in disagreement with Xi Jinping about, right. you know, say 
COVID controls or something like that. Right. Whereas you could have a governor in the U.S. Actually, you have several governors in the U.S. This has been going on for several years. <laughs> you know, saying some eh, maybe not so good things about the president and but being very opposed to whatever policies I think, he's trying to put I think on. maybe on an abstract level, like theoretically, they'll understand our system is different, but like instinctually, that's not what they've been brought up with and that's not how their system works. So they'll have trouble understanding that this wasn't timing. Or... And let's just play devil's advocate for a second. Maybe it was timing. Maybe the administration said, you will release this, you know, I I guess a week, less than a week before the opening of the party congress. Yeah. Because it might sneak under their radar or because they'll be too busy dealing with the political implications of everything going on domestically so that they won't be able to kind of respond as Mm -hmm. aggressively as they would to, to a... Uh, export restrictions such as this like a very targeted right sort of so i mean maybe maybe there was actually the more i think about it there was timing i mean there was timing it could have been i don't know that i believe that there was like because i just don't see like how much do you believe in conspiracy theories here i don't know that it's conspiracy right it's just a simple like like what like you just do like a like cost benefit analysis right it's like like what does the administration gain by poking the bear right before its most important But they're event not. They, they wouldn't years. see it as poking the bear. They would see it as slipping one under their noses while they're busy with something else. Yeah, but I feel like that's a really naive view to take, right? Like, if there's just... If that's how you think that it's going to be interpreted, you know, like, this very targeted... Like, they cite... The rule specifically says, like, PRC, CCP, you know, like, it's calling them out in a sense... I think either way, after the party congress is over, we can expect to see some sort of response out of China. Yeah, they just don't think they're going to be. It's very just not going to be happening the in the next seven days or so. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Should we talk a little bit about Xi Jinping and party congress, or I think that's a. Topic. Should we leave it for a different one? I think we leave it for the next one. So have you finished? Tuned. Have you finished listening to all of the Prince yet? No, I'm on the last two episodes. Okay, then yeah, then I finish. guess we're shouting out the Prince. Yeah, it's a great podcast. <laughs> great podcast done by the Economist. It's all about Xi Jinping and his rise to power and how he's consolidated power in China, as well as human rights abuses like in Xinjiang and Nepal. Um, it's a great listen um, and and goes into a lot of detail. So if you get a chance, yeah, I'll link that in the show notes and then we can talk about it on the next one after party congress and stuff is done. Okay, so see I see what their new leadership is. Yeah, I think the last thing we should cover with this the semiconductors in china is we both read that twitter thread about sort of posing the argument that this accelerates conflict between the u.s and china and like whether or not the chinese are going to try to invade take over taiwan blah 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 right like do you want to try to summarize yeah I the think, argument or so i think let's i think we can i want to preface it this is like there are a, are a lot of factors that go into the Chinese aggression towards Taiwan. And I think this is one of them that I didn't really think about before. And the, the, the tweet thread basically says that one thing that was holding China back previously from outright invading Taiwan sooner rather than later was that Taiwan, as we talked about, produces 80% of advanced semiconductors and they don't want to be cut off from that. And they don't want to be cut off from the influx of technology and intellectual property, IP, that lets them develop that um, ability domestically, that manufacturing ability domestically. If they invaded Taiwan, 
they would be cut off from that. But now that we've effectively cut, cut them off from that regulatorily, they're more likely to invade Taiwan. They have less uh, scruples about making that move as soon as they feel their military and their economic conditions are ready for it. Did I sum that the tweet up the tweet thread up correctly? Yeah, I think you summed that up. The the one the to me the most interesting point in this thread. So the guy who wrote it, uh, his name's Tanner Greer, I believe. Um, I'm not sure he's a professor or something. I'm not sure. He calls himself an essayist. Yeah. Anyways, well, we can link this thread too. Any, but the one of the arguments he made that I thought was really interesting was he pointed out this notion that it's actually advantageous to the U.S. for China to believe that it's a state in decline. Say that again. So in the so when you go back and read the thread, he he sort of points out this idea that previously China had kind of adopted this stance of like strategic patience and like you know like mm-hmm. we don't think in terms of years, we think in terms of decades and centuries, right? And so to China them, does, yeah. China does, yeah, not the U.S. The U.S. is subject to the the, the next midterm, yeah, of the yeah. election cycle every two and four years, right? And so to them, as long as they could view the U.S. as a declining state and on the way out, it made sense and it was okay oh. for them strategically to just wait, right, right? Because why We're would you do it to ourselves? Wh- We're gonna shoot ourselves in the head. Yeah, why would you move and risk really anything if you're confident that your opponent is just going to continually put itself in a worse and worse and worse position? Right. right. If your expectation is that they're declining, they're on the way out, they're having more and more infighting, they're as a country not united, all of this. And sorts on top of, of that, you if you're to... talking about that on the world stage and you're repeating that over and over again, other countries might start to believe it as well. Make, make you're sort of influencing that opinion, prophecy, yeah, all that sort of stuff, right? And so in the in this sort of argument, um, Greer essentially says that by doing this sort of like export control and going after the like the chips in China and like trying to put a cap and a limit on these things, the U.S. is directly sort of kneecapping China's technological development, which then signals to them that like we are now in direct competition. Like we are like we recognize that you, you know, like you are trying to like surpass us in this way. And basically we're going to do what we can to prevent that. And then also we're going to start acting in a way to try to reverse this image of like we're a country in decline or whatever, Mm -hmm. which is actually a much more dangerous policy to adopt because you're then creating more uncertainty on the Chinese leadership side, which then creates sort of like anxiety and like a sense of urgency of like we need to like we need to do something. We need to, you know, like we need to move in a way that we're going to like, we're not going to allow the U.S. to cap our rise or to get in our way sort of thing, right? Whereas previously, they sort of had been under this notion of like, we just need to wait. I, I, I agree with that to a certain extent, but I think that's like going down like the game theory rabbit hole, right? Like, I think backing up, the real question is however you interpret it is, as he says, we've crossed a Rubicon here. Like the trade war, this in, a, in, ex- in essence is a, it's a continuation of the trade war began, what, eight years 2017, ago? so no, five-ish five years, five years ago. Five-ish years ago by Donald Trump. Yeah. Like, we're at an inflection point, whatever you want to call it. Also, as an aside, is it a coincidence that Greer's last name is the same as uh, the um, CIA guy from 
was it? The Amazon Prime show that was also the uh, Jack whatever. Jack Ryan. Yeah. yeah. Coincidence? I think not. Tom Clancy. Yeah. This is this is the deep state right here. <laughs> it's just a CIA burner account, and there's like no person. There's, there's no photo of a person, so why not? Uh, I think. I that's think. that's probably a thing. They probably run like like Twitter accounts that are just like anon, and they're just like, I don't know, pitching whatever. Like it's not a crazy notion, is it? Right? Like they're like in they're on Twitter in other countries, and they're just like pushing their like you know doing the same thing that I'm sure other intelligence agencies around the world. Like we know the Russians do it. Like <laughs> that's just the Russians. Like yeah. you know, it's like like the Israelis do it, Russians do it. Like, why don't the Americans do it? It's probably not the craziest thing, but. When we know how easy it is to have bought Twitter accounts. Thanks, Elon. <laughs> thanks, <laughs> Elon. Look at this. I'm just going to tweet uh, Bitcoin, MetaMask, uh, Moon, rocket ship emoji, and I'm going to have 30 bot replies. No, yeah. And, and then you have to and then you have to say, you know, click the link for a crypto giveaway. You know. And then I'm going to buy a fake uh, blue check Twitter account and I'm going to change the PFP to Vitalik and say I'm giving away free money. I'm just going to take all your money. It's a scam. <laughs> Give me your coins. I think what we're taking away from this is Twitter is a scam. Well, Twitter's not a real place, so <laughs> probably is a scam. <laughs> <laughs> that might be our cold open. <laughs> it's not a real place. <laughs> okay. All right. I think we've kind of beat that horse to death. Yeah, no, I think we've covered covered the important parts here. Let's let's pivot to energy, and do a better job than Obama did in twenty fourteen in Asia. <laughs> that was a that was an elite joke. Energy. One can dream. All right, so well, oil markets. Let's probably start there, right? Saudi Arabia, U.S., OPEC plus. Let's go from that. Well, they decided to cut uh, supply. By two million billion, two million barrels a day. Yep. Am I getting that number right? I yeah. think that's right. The oil production. And this kind of blindsided the Biden administration because they expected, especially after Biden metaphorically bent the knee and fist bumped, um, what's his name, the Saudi prince, the crown prince, MBS baby. MBS, yes. Um, after after the public he, killing of a Washington, he's like Post a, he's like a violent extremist GQ guy. <laughs> What? Like he's like trying um, to he's like trying to be like modern and cool, but he murders people for fun. It's like, ooh, that's like not good. Oh, the magazine GQ. Hey, come on, guys. I was thinking of other things. I'll explain. Like, um, uh, well, he was we could probably just basic just basic stuff on the oil production stuff. The reason that that's a big thing, right, is so oil prices are subject to basic laws of supply and demand, like every th- other market in the planet, right? So. There's a baseline level of barrels of oils that are produced on a daily basis by the OPEC plus countries, which is essentially like Arab mafia plus Russia. <laughs> <laughs> like we're going to hold the world hostage in terms of energy. Uh, but so they said they they had their annual meeting, I believe it is. Maybe it's. I want to say it's more. I think it's like. They quarterly. probably quarterly something. Whatever. Yeah. Not I mean, the, the frequency doesn't matter that much. Whatever. It's just a legal multinational cartel where they right. get together and say right. this is how, how do we make children, the most money children of uh, uh, who are studying macroeconomics here this is how uh, like free markets do not work you know it's, it's, it's my guy people my, binding my, together and agreeing to set prices my guy Ratcliffe would go on and on about the cartels like ah oh, these are bad like anyways so they the 
by cutting supply, basically they ensured that like oil prices are going to minimum stay the same, if not continue to elevate. Around eighty ninety dollars a barrel right now. I think. When the decision was made, it might have like prices might have increased a bit then, but for them it's just very simple, right? It's like they, as oil producing states, have a vested interest in right. keeping oil price as high as possible because they generate more profits. Right. So. And they will they have very be, little incentive to increase the amount of production and increase the supply of oil they're putting on the market. And demand, while slightly flexible, is going to maintain, going to stay high, you know, across at least most of the world, regardless of what the price of oil is. You know? Yeah, like we need oil for everything. Yeah, like the, there's just there's just really not a world where you can say, all right, we're gonna cut our oil usage in half Mm -hmm. in 30 days or something. But this is also coming on the heels of Russia cutting oil supply to Europe, and then, I put this in question marks, self-sabotaging Nord Stream 1? Question mark? Yeah. This is my conspiracy theories coming out again. There's still still no conclusive facts on who did that, but I think that I'm in the camp that the Ukrainians did it. Because, so, the bridge thing... Well, alright, well, explain... Ex- can you, like, give maybe, a brief okay. overview of, of what happened? We should, we should, we'll loop back to those. Let's, let's, let's stay on the, let's stay on the... No, Saudi stuff. Arabia. This okay. is, like, a segue. Like, we can come back to the Ukraine stuff. But, I think the, with the oil in the Saudi Arabia thing, I think, so, obviously, we had the, the supply cut, keep oil prices elevated. Let's talk about why that's a big backhand to the U.S. And, like, why that creates, like, all these, yeah. like, like implications relations all that sort of stuff well why is it a big back i mean right so the so so biden in the white house they like biden went in person to saudi arabia in september i believe right like late september and essentially the point of this meeting was he was because just average americans are getting deleted at the pump right now and well i mean i I gotta say it too i gotta say it a lot of people are saying it's very politically motivated because he want you know if oil prices are low and the economy is doing well and inflate we can tame inflation, then the higher chances of him um, preserving his majorities in midterms elections, which are which in a month, in, in yeah, in November. So, right. Yeah. So there, I mean, certainly there's an argument less that, than a month, two weeks, I think. Right, second November. Yeah, they they are two weeks away now. That's, yeah. Wow, time gets away from you. Yeah, but so sure, there's an argument that they're very politically motivated. I'm motivated, also too though. It kind of is president's job to try to take care of the American society and lower oil prices are generally a good thing for yeah, American but he society. Went, he went to Riyadh, but the or, timing, of course, right? Is that how you pronounce the capital, Riyadh? Uh, it's Riyadh. Riyadh, right? Yeah, that's what I said. That's okay. You're not the Middle East guy. <laughs> Randy'd be disappointed though. <laughs> he would be coming at you for the rest of your presentation for doing that. Yeah, well, you would you would be Riyadi for the rest of the semester. <laughs> we had a teacher that was merciless, but so in my next intercession class, we're going to Djibouti and Riyadi. And <laughs> to be fair, though, he made fun of any anyone and everyone. He was, he was e- equal he was, opportunist. Yeah, he was, he was non-discriminatory in his <laughs> in his. Uh, in his it was verbal sparring. It was all about making you a better person. Build, break you down, build you up, kind of thing. Yeah, he was a, you know, rough around the edges, but in a good way. Yeah. So, but so yeah, so like Biden went on this whole trip to essentially 
ask for an increase in production so they could lower prices. Generally, it's just a good thing for most of the West, mm-hmm. for the U.S., everybody else, lower gas prices. Good. People are happier. They pay less to fill up their car, right? So he goes on the strip, and after, so then he comes back after sort of making this request and kind of walking back his own sort of line in the sand about being friendly with MBS because of all the Jamal Khashoggi stuff several Which years ago. Which was the Washington Post reporter who was assassinated, allegedly, by MBS. Or ordered it's, by MBS. It's pretty, yeah. It's pretty, pretty, it's at pretty this obvious. point in time, it's pretty and, clear and that Biden was very strong in his rhetoric during the election cycle. We don't we, deal with we, dictators right, and murderers right. and blah, so he's walking that pretty strong human rights statement back and saying, "Hey, we're going to prioritize." I mean, to be fair, maybe he just forgot he said that. <laughs> his well, if his aides forget to remind him, then like you know. you know. But so he came back, and then and then that was when OPEC Plus, like they announced that they weren't going to increase the amount of they're actually going to decrease it so and they literally did the opposite right of what the white house has asked them to do and had sort of invested this By time dramatic, and energy yeah you know like it's one thing to just maintain a status quo right it's another to do the literal opposite of what was requested and that i think is sort of the, the smack in the face and then they doubled down on it by the the saudi ministry of foreign affairs put out essentially like a memo saying we refuse to be bullied by any country into making a policy decision. Like, right. We always make sure we examine the facts and take a very objective, you know, approach that is in the best benefits for all in the market and blah, 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 blah. And they, you know, they put out a whole thing saying, well, we're doing this because we care about lowering the amount of volatility in the oil and energy markets. And we want to make sure that there's stable prices and stable, you know, whatever. It's all flowery language for them to say, we need to make more money. But in the memo, it also was kind of saying like, oh, the U.S. is a bully and we're not going to let you bully us and we're not going to allow like any influence and intervention to our country and blah, 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 blah. It's just sort of aggressive and it's not really like – it's almost like a public shaming thing that you probably don't want to do to somebody that's supposed to be your ally. Right. You know, right? Like if I have a dispute with one of my good friends, I don't go on Facebook and flame him. You know, it's just, I don't think that's going to help our friendship, but that's like kind of the equivalent of what these guys did. We can link the, uh, we'll link the the memo for that in the show notes as well. So if anybody's curious and wants to go check out what Riyadh had to say. Riyadh, yes, Riyadh, I will never forget. But I think it's fair to give Riyadh's perspective um, in, in the interest of fairness here. At least what they are saying, Saudi's officials told their American car- counterparts that they believed the oil market could collapse if they didn't act and fall to fifty dollars a barrel, a move they would feared would imperil the kingdom's uh, Vision Twenty Thirty economic plan to diversify its economy. So, their plan, this Vision Twenty Thirty, there's a lot that goes into it, but essentially, it's hey, we realize that in the long term future, uh, you know, carbon fossil fuels is going to be a declining share of the energy matrix. We're moving more to green renewable. We need to find a way to, you know, we have a, we need to find a way to keep our economy strong moving forward in the next decades. To do that, they need to maximize their profit right now to fund all the, the investment, uh, the sovereign investment in, into these uh, different technologies and cities and, and stuff that they're building yep and so if they lose that and literally you know if it falls from like 
excuse me, $80, $90 a barrel to $50 a barrel is what they're claiming would have happened if they hadn't reduced their output, then, you know, has dramatic long-term con consequences. So in their, you know, in their like view of the worldview here, they're making a rational decision to preserve their future. I think the rest of it is kind of rhetoric and, you know, maybe they, I, I mean, in my opinion, they also want to want to tell Russia that they're not against Russia. You know, they don't want to be uh, as vehemently anti-Russia as a lot of the Western world is right now. And I think that's hedging their geopolitical bets, depending on, on the long-term outcome of uh, the Ukraine crisis, is, is what my guess would be. Okay, but how, okay, how does that, that doesn't, that doesn't, that just like doesn't add up though, because, okay, so the other thing that came out of Saudi Arabia this week was they, they announced that they were going to deliver $400 million worth of military aid to the Ukrainians, so we, how are they, yeah, how are they hedging their bets <laughs> if they're sending weapons to the Ukrainians with the, like, it's like, okay, well, is this just like the always sunny meme? It's like I'm playing all sides. All sides. <laughs> so I always come out on top. Like, what's the? I mean, I, I, honestly, just, I don't know what the game honestly, is playing. That is could here. be it. That could be it. But also, I, yeah, I don't. I, it could be a case of just like bad diplomacy on the State Department and Biden's on, on Biden's part, and it backfired. And we tried to pressure them, and they responded it didn't to it. And they honestly said, you know stop messing around with us you can't bully us because a lot of the, these like machinations of, of states come down to the interactions between individuals and you know people who feel they are being pressured are going to react as such so i i don't know i, I think maybe we, we won't ever know but there's no way to know i just yeah. i think i always love reading these government announcements and memos and whatever because people have to couch what's going on right. <laughs> and just like ridiculous somehow language. somebody has to like turn on their propaganda producing brain yeah <laughs> to write these things right so you have like the opec plus group makes its decisions independently in accordance with established independent practices followed by the international organizations they said independent twice in that <laughs> like, they were getting like tired. that is that is a sentence that means nothing <laughs> It's like, we make our decisions independently with other independent international organizations. What does that tell, what is, what does that tell me? Who? What? <laughs> like, I wonder, what do you I mean? think maybe that's why people in the international community dislike Trump so much because he didn't follow those kind of paradigms of, of couching your language in this like vague, abstract, wordy, well, that's flowery what I mean. language. He just said, Russia bad, China bad, you know? <laughs> I mean, that's definitely why I like the Europeans. We're not they a fan. They right? love the flowery language I mean, in they, Europe. You yeah. know, they have their prim and proper sort of elitist system. Yeah. Yeah. What's the what's the word I'm looking for? Like not culture, but they have their like rituals and mm -hmm. ways of doing things. But well, I mean, kind of like an aside here too is as GTP three and other of these like <laughs> AI technologies come more prevalent, like you'll see more of this, and the people who write this stuff will not need to be employed because you don't need someone like who's super smart to write these kind of things. You just write the prompt, and it can pump out these words, this word soup, essentially. You know, if you want to streamline all of these jobs, right? You just you, you just have like a like a Google Drive of what three hundred templates with fill in the blanks. <laughs> it's like fill in the blank country, you know. Um, like decision. You just have some intern in the White House being like, like all right, we're going to need monetary amount. <laughs> like, like, okay, uh, this week the good guys are, next week the bad guys are. 
Yeah. I, I mean, know. jokes aside, because we, I, I, I do have, I have seen some of the process that goes into this. A lot of these statements and these policy positions, there's a lot of thought that goes into it, but I think that's part of the problem is it's like writing by committee and you have all these inputs that you have to get across these different governments, you know, whatever, if it's the U S government or the Saudi government or whoever, like every agency and ministry that has a hand in it has, has a chop, has a, has a chance to edit. Right. And then, you know, so the thing that comes out ends up saying not very much, but the underlying sentiment might still be there. Yeah. Might be. Yeah. (laughs) Might be. In, in quotes. In, in, quotes. A, in the best case scenario, is there. But, yeah. Anyway. Um, um, anything else, international energy markets, we wanted to cover? I, I mean, I think that was. I think generally thing. the takeaway, too, is that there's just. Prices are going to ma- stay high for a while. This is kind of guaranteed that. Yeah. And How does this affect you? Your, your, your tank of yeah, gas is not coming still down to stay soon. over $6 if, if, if you're in probably going to. It might even get more expensive still. Right. Like and and the energy insecurity and energy woes that we're seeing as a direct result of the uh, Russian aggression in Ukraine and Nord Stream One being sabotaged, who knows by who, you know, those in energy insecurities will only continue, and you know, shocks will continue. So, okay, so the let's, future is bleak. There, let's move to that. Let's do so. There was the pipeline, and there was also the bridge in Crimea. Uh, those were both. Attacks, war and war, and have to deal war with Ukraine, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. So, the Nord Stream one thing. I think we talked about this already, but it was just basically like a gas pipeline to Europe that was by nobody knows who yet. Um, sabotage was sabotaged and is basically non-functional now. And then, so the thing with Crimea. So there's a land bridge that connects Russia to Crimea on the southeastern side of the. Is it is it an island technically? Is it not? Yeah. Is it not? Is it? Or is it it connected? Is it a peninsula? Whatever. Regardless, the southeast side is connected to Russia via like a land bridge. And that's kind of really the only way in and out of Crimea Mm -hmm. for the Russians. And so they use that to supply troops and weapons and food and all the sorts of things that come with a war. And that bridge was attacked. Uh, I think it was two weeks ago now and basically there was a large van that was driven onto the bridge and it was loaded with explosives and it was just set off in the middle of the bridge and it it took out one side so it didn't completely destroy it so like part of the bridge is still usable but it was sort of a very aggressive act and you had ukrainian officials going on air and not quite claiming credit for doing it because it, it was harmful to the Russians and their ability to, you know, move troops and supplies into Crimea, but sort of not downplaying or denying accusations of that they had done it, right? They right. were sort of, you know, parroting like, oh, this is so good for the Ukrainians and blah, 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 blah. blah. And, you know, people would bring up the question of like, oh, well, like, did you guys organize this? Like, well, this is really good for the Ukrainian military and helps support our cause and blah, blah, you know, so it's kind of like... It, appears that most likely they were the ones who did this attribution aside this is kind of a big hit for russia because it limits their ability to resupply um and move into ukraine via right not just ukraine but crimea because remember ukraine 
like is not giving up Crimea in this war, even though back in 2014 it was seized by Russia. You know, so did you see? Did you see the map? Of, but by the way, speaking of maps, Crimea isn't is not an island. It's connected uh, by the to the continent by the Isthmus of Perikop, a strip of land about five to seven kilometers wide. So that makes it a peninsula, right? Yes. Nice. Um, what did I not see? I was going to ask if you saw the... Did you see the map of the... I think they had like a referendum regarding Russia in 2012 or something. And it shows like all the states and whatever. It was really... I I don't know if I have this. I, I, I watched it in that lecture that mm-hmm. was put on by the member of the World Affairs Council down here earlier this week. But it showed the... Oh, no, I think it was the independence, like, like when Ukraine decided to become an independent state. I think so. It was, like, a long time ago. Um, and it was, like, each of the each of the states within Ukraine, like, showed their, like, mm-hmm. dis- their voting percentages and whether or not Ukraine should be independent from Russia and all these sorts of things. And, anyways, the point of it that was really interesting was that all of the regions on the east side, so Donetsk and Luhansk, and also Crimea, were the lowest supporters of Ukrainian independence from Russia. And, like, I think Crimea was the lowest by, like, Crimea was, like, it was, like, 52% of the people there voted to support the Ukrainian independence from Russia. And so I just thought that that was interesting and illuminating and putting into context the larger conflict and all of the discussion about, you know, Russia and who does this territory properly belong to and all those sorts of things. But understanding more of why, you know, there might be some feeling on the Russian side of like, well, these are like our people and we share a lot in common and this is land that should belong to us, right? Because there is sort of, or not sort of, but there is a relatively sizable part of the population in these regions that do feel ethnically Russian and they speak Russian and it makes it easier to understand why there would be kind of conflict over these regions and why it's not necessarily like as cut and dry as like, these people are like Ukrainians and Ukraine only and these people are Russians and there's no, you know, these things get a little bit gray. Not defending Russia's actions or anything like that. More so just trying to contextually understand right. why there could be, you know, why there is conflict about these things and disagreements about who's who and who should own what and all of that. I think, uh, too, with Crimea, and you kind of hit upon this, but actually in, it was is kind of owned and controlled by the Russian... Soviet Federation of Socialist Republics um, in uh, until 1954 when Khrushchev gave it to the Ukrainian Soviet, Soviet Socialist Republic. So still part of the Soviet Union. Union. And, but, you know, and to them, the Soviet, in the 50s, Soviet Union was never going to break up. That was the height of the Soviet's power. Yeah. So that was, I'm trying to remember like the, the context of why Khrushchev did that. I think it was maybe kind of a political move, but to them it meant nothing, really, right? At the time. Until the dissolution of this, uh, the Soviet Union, and it, then Russian Federation became its own independent political entity. It inherited a lot of the things like the military from the Soviet Union, but the land was again divided up. Ukraine became a separate company, country, sorry, not company, uh, and, and held on to Ukraine. Uh, sorry, and held on to Crimea. Um, so... Like, politically, 
it was for a while a little unclear. Again, I want to say that doesn't defend Russia's invasion of Crimea or claiming of Crimea, but there is a little bit of like ambiguity there, um, and one can kind of understand the argument, even if you don't agree with it, why Crimea should belong to Russia. That is why they're making it, right? Yeah, yeah. So I think the the other thing we should cover that we should cover that map that was that's in the Economist, and then just like largely about like sort of this idea of like why are the Russians going after the eastern region of Ukraine first well, or well, why is why that a Crim- priority well why is Crimea so important first start with that right yeah it's all it's, it's a all warm together. water part it's a warm water port with to the Black Sea which you know through the Straits of Dar- uh, the sorry the Dardanelles which are in Turkey if you go through then there then you have access to the Med and the wider sea so it's one of the few Russia has I think St. Petersburg technically a warm water port. You would know better than I. I don't. I, I don't know. I can't if, remember. It, it's it has to do with whether they freeze over in the winter because obviously then for part of the year uh, the port's inaccessible. But Russia as a whole has very few warm water ports that are accessible year round. Which I mean, makes I think Crimea it would literally important. just be Crimea and St. Petersburg because nothing they have on their eastern. Well, the the west is a different matter, but. Yes, on their eastern, like, Seaboard, European right. side. Sorry, the western European side. Um, I think it's just St. Petersburg and Crimea. Yeah, I, can I think that's it. Is. Like, I, I don't see what else there would be if you go look at the uh, go look at the map. So. The point uh, about... Yeah, St. So Petersburg is a, a warm water port. It's a accessible year-round. Year but other than that, they have very few. So Crimea is very important economically and and, uh, and geopolitically in that respect and then do you want to talk about why the eastern regions then like what tell me why the east they're focusing on the eastern regions of ukraine yes i mean i think we should talk about it, right i think it's it's sort of a it's interesting that russia has chosen not to continue to sort of like attack kiev and like make advances in like different parts of ukraine they really sort of concentrated their military force on this eastern border of Ukraine, right? And they've kind of, like, the guise that it's been under is that, well, these are ethnic Russians who want to be a part of Russia, so we're just supporting them. (laughs) Wait, you don't mean that... What about the anti... or the denazification of Ukraine? I feel like... You don't believe in that? I feel like that story has fallen to the wayside. (laughs) I think think that was, like... I don't think anyone's pushing that anymore. That was just, like... It was just such blatant, like, on the head, like, we don't believe any of this. I don't think even, like, the the pro-Putin Russians ever believe that either. I don't... I think everybody just pretended to believe it. I don't think anybody did. It was just, like, a... Well, I have to make something up about why I'm being a jackass. (laughs) You know, like... Um... But so they've been focused on this on this eastern front. Let me call it that. Is that right? <laughs> is this is a it, big is enough? Is it quiet word? too? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but so they've been focused on it under that guise, right? But if you go and you look at the geography of the region, you you sort of recognize that the areas that they focus their military on gives Russia geographical access to the northern part of Crimea. Mm-hmm. Right. Whereas if they don't control those areas, Donetsk, Luhansk, and sort of that like southeastern geographic region of Ukraine, then the only way that they can access Ukraine is what we were talking about earlier, is the bridge that bridge that was, was very attacked. vulnerable. They thought it was very vulnerable. Turns out it was. It, it was turns vulnerable. out it was. Yeah. And like, you know, it's it's very much like a, what's the, like a, 
I don't know, a strategic vulnerability. What's the word for like a point that's like your elbow or something? I don't know. Like you, it's like you I break it there. You... It's much more. It's much worse than if you like a soft break spot? your forearm or something. Maybe I don't know. There's a word I'm looking for. It's not coming to mind. But right. So the point of that being that actually underlying like the underlying motive might just genuinely be this really is a war of conquest because as opposed Putin, to, sorry as opposed to a war of what we denazification right well we and <laughs> support of ethnic russians in ukraine i don't think anyone believed either of those reintegration you know? of i don't know whatever they were this trying is, to argue that i think most you know realist observers of international affairs agree this is a purely geopolitical play russia is following their geopolitical imperative they saw ukraine nato the west you know maybe even america at a at a point of relative weakness and they well, can make this okay move. so the point that i think is interesting about about them like focusing on this eastern front and taking this land is that it gives you a separate lens to look at it from the nato thing i think everybody i'm not gonna say everybody a lot of people who who have been sort of arguing against the u.s and westerners getting too involved in this Ukraine-Russia conflict have been saying that, well, the West provoked this. This is the U.S. and NATO's fault because they refused to put on the table that Ukraine won't join NATO, right? If you look at it as this sort of geopolitical this imperative the, uh, of having to control the land, yeah. right, then like maybe it wouldn't have mattered whether or not NATO had done that and like Russia and Putin just saw that it was a geopolitical necessity for them to control the land you know this eastern region that gave them pure access to well, crimea from both the north and the eastern part of it and so i, I, I think, think that, that's what's well i think the nato right? argument is is a um a complementary argument to the geopolitical argument yeah they, right? can, they like, can go together i'm just saying it's like right it's yeah. a way to look at it without that just being the sort of like religious end-all be-all yeah yeah right i see what you're saying you yeah know, but because, i think it's important to note that like he was pushed a little bit farther. Putin felt he was pushed a little bit farther due to this because he didn't feel secure on his European border because of the NATO expansion. And so he needs to secure his warm water ports, secure his access to the Black Sea and the Med, and, you know, just push his his border a little bit to the West. Yeah. The And then the last part of it that I think is interesting is that if you are going to see it as this, is that he's most concerned with securing those two things, then the golden bridge out of this conflict might actually be an agreement that lets Russia control those kind of pseudo-annexed regions. Are you anti-Ukraine and pro-Russia? You're not allowed to say that. And cancel me. You're pro-Putin. I'm canceling you right now. Press the cancel button. Don't say say it on Twitter. I'm going to tweet. No, I, I think you make a really good point. It's like, you know, how far does this have to go? Russia, I'm sorry, Ukraine has kind of uh, like a momentum in their, their counterattack right now, at least as we're talking. They the are, at the moments. moment, they're winning. Like right. They are absolutely kicking the Russians' ass. But these construct, con- these 300,000 conscripts from Russia are about to flood in. I think Russia thinks that, you know, they can throw bodies at the problem, uh, cannon fodder, and kind of you know, stop, stop the Ukrainian. So that, that actually, can, is, that's a extent. different argument because that's, we can get into that another time because that's a, uh, interesting in, in military circles of how far has technology and, and precision guided weaponry advanced 
and um, like, mobile units that you, Ukrainian units are a lot more mobile uh, than the Russians one. Uh, and they have those precision accuracy of Western munitions. Mm-hmm. Can that be successful against more of a traditional army of conscripts that aren't as well trained? Um, but I think you raise a good point of like whether or not Ukraine can keep up their momentum uh, in their counterattack. Maybe it is worth just saying, we're going to write off these regions, agree that Ukraine's never going to be a part of NATO, stop the slaughter. I mean, why not? I, I mean, don't think that's pro-Russian to say, to say never, that. right? Like, just... Putin turned 70 this year, I think. I think he, tried, I think, you know, he was 70, 72, something like that. Like, he's not a young man. Dude's not a spring chicken, you know? And so it's like, well, if you're if you're looking for a Spring way out, chicken, how old are you? That's like a grandfather's term. That's the term my grandfather used. Oh, well, he's not a spring chicken anymore. Well, you haven't spent enough time in the Midwest. <laughs> you're right. I haven't. And I probably won't. <laughs> but you know, right? It's like you know, just like do an agreement that's like, okay, we'll do ten years no NATO agreement off the table, and then we can reconvene then. And it's like, well, now Putin's eighty, and like. Maybe he's fully seen out. Why do but why different do you, leadership? Why do you think it's so taboo to say that? You know, because I think that's a that's a legitimate. Um, if you know, you're going to try to have negotiations to so like end the conflict, right? Right. Yeah, I mean, but you're not allowed to say that. At, at least, yes, on Twitter, we're joking about Twitter, but like, it's not a real just place. <laughs> inter- <laughs> Twitter is a scam. <laughs> it's just but not a it, real place. internationally too, no no Western leader would be no, caught saying that, thing. even I though mean, everyone is thinking that. Except for I will give him credit. Even I don't though I'm think, not a fan. I don't think Macron's saying it. I don't think everybody's thinking that. No, like I like I think conceptually, most leaders probably understand or at least entertain the argument. And I think a lot of it just has to do with sort of the counter to it, right, is, well, like, why would we, if the Ukrainians are winning, as they are right now, why would you accede to the authoritarian, the the aggressor? Why would you give them anything? Why would you, right, you have the upper hand at the moment. Right. Why would we, why would we, you know, right, it's like if you're playing a game of poker and your opponent is down to their last, I don't know, their last small stack of chips, right, like, why would you end the game there and let them walk away with any money instead of just taking all of it? Do you play poker on a regular basis, or are you just pulling a poker thing out of your ass? Oh, one can dream. <laughs> I listen to I listen to All In. I feel like that's a uh, oh yeah. Therefore, honorary, you're an expert poker player, honorary yeah. poker player. You should play more. We should. I don't have enough money to lose though. <laughs> we'll play with small bucks. I, I think you have a good point. I, you know, we can buy in with pounds, so it's cheaper. <laughs> <laughs> or euros. <laughs> Oof. I'm sorry to our European listeners. I I'm not. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, the I think the last thing on this is just the in the news this, this past week was I don't remember who reported it, but there essentially were like CIA analysts shooting up to the White House that their expectation or not their expectation their analysis of the potential use of tactical nuclear weapons in Ukraine now ranges from I think it was 5 to 25% up to 25% there's up to a 25% possibility yeah right whereas previously like their assessment had been a less than 5% chance right I got to say a, a possibility of the use of nukes that's above like 0.01% is very high in my in my book like we're talking about a now we're talking about 
a one in four, a one in twenty to a one in four possibility of ta tactical nukes. That's a while, yes, less than fifty percent, which is what a lot of people use as a threshold and kind of a, a general rule of thumb. That's still like a huge possibility. Like I would not take that risk of. I don't know what what's a what's an equivalent, uh, like like uh, Russian roulette. Right. Your company like, failing. I would never <laughs> right, play like running out of money. <laughs> that's basically playing right, Russian roulette is a one in six chance, right? Like um, of death. Of death, right? Because there's six chambers in a gun, and you spin around, you shoot at your head. That's essentially what we're doing here. You know, somewhere around that probability of, and yes, one could say yes, they're tactical nukes, but these these things tend to escalate, and our nuclear policy is such that we don't allow any kind of nukes. Tactical or otherwise. Two things. Just number one, I think this is why it's important that everybody should watch the uh, the Doctor Strange Love film, which is just about like nuclear weapons and, mm -hmm. and mad. It's mm -hmm. like a nineteen fifties movie. It's old, but it's really good. Number two, do you understand the difference between a tactical nuclear weapon and a non tactical one? If yeah, can you break it down? I I don't have a technical explanation, but it has to deal with yield. Um, so the size of yes, essentially the, like the size of the explosion. I don't know what the numbers the are of, there. Like, damage it's going to do. But also, my instinct is to say that it's not specifically internationally agreed on upon what like where's the threshold between tactical and strategic nuke. Yeah, I mean that seems right. like it should but be a thing that like the IAEA works on, right? So this was this was back to yeah. So there might be a, a thing that we can look up, but this is back to. I think you're right on the yield thing because I believe it has to do with like the amount of radiation it's going to leave in the area afterwards. So like how like concentrated? I think that's a part of it as well as obviously like the size of the like like the like the warhead itself. Right, like, is it going to destroy a city block or an entire city? Uh, yes, exactly. And I am looking up the exact. So, uh, the yield varies for a tactical nuclear weapon. This is from Wikipedia. From a tactical nuclear weapon, from a fraction of a kiloton to approximately fifty kilotons. In comparison, a strategic nuclear weapon has a yield of, or if you yield from one hundred kilotons to over a megaton with much larger warheads available um in terms of like how many kilotons can level a block i'm not sure okay so you know. so so simply tactical smaller yes strategic smaller bigger yes so to explain it in call of duty terms uh -oh. the tax 25 kill streak the strategic's like 100 kill streak there you go <laughs> for all of those kids out there that well, most games. most American kids played Call of Duty, so you're you're on the you're you're the weird one here. And somehow I'm still more tactical. But okay, all right. I think that might be covers the that Ukraine one, yeah. stuff. Yeah, let's move on to let's just let's just talk about the Iranian protests. Generally, <laughs> generally, it's terrible what's happened. I think. Uh, the yeah. latest estimate is over 200 people have been killed, mostly women. 23 of those were children. Possibly. Possibly, which according is to some sources. Awful and scary and sad. And and the whole thing was triggered by a sad event. Um, a 22 year old Morality woman. police, yeah. I think her, her name was like... I don't recall her name. We should look this up. I I'm think terrible it's, with names, as we've established. It's so. important to know. But, um, but she was killed for showing too much hair, for not wearing a... Uh, Hijab. Uh, thank you. Yeah. Hijab. That's what we're doing. Um, 
killed by the morality p- police. This uh, kind of triggered a lot of protests uh, that have been continuing much longer than anybody would have guessed. Yeah, so the, the, the gal's name, her name was Masa Amini. Hopefully I didn't murder that pronunciation. But so she died on September 16th, which was several days after her arrest by the Marathi police for exposing too much hair in public. You you know? Can you wrap your mind around? <laughs> you dying? know, a country is fucked up when they kill someone over showing too much hair. Like that's just like I don't know what version of morality you subscribe to, but that's just barbaric. I know that's the word for barbaric. It's it's, it's barbaric. So, but the protests so the protests have been going on for literally a month at this point, yeah. which is a, quite a long time. And especially with the level of violence that the Iranian regime can use to suppress and, these sorts uh, of the things. The tools, the security tools that they right. use, yeah. And so one of the things that is re- that to me has stood out is really interesting about these protests is that, so like just about any large-scale protest that goes on in any country, right, there tends to be much more young people who are participating in this sort of thing. Mm-hmm. You just have more time, you're... You have different interests than people who are older. You have less things that you're trying to protect. You're kind less of how, committed to the status quo. Well, yeah, those sorts of things. That just is the same. But what's interesting here is so like all these people protesting, they've all been they were born after the revolution, mm-hmm. or at least a majority of them, right? So they haven't lived in anything or known anything besides a sort of oppressive regime that has these draconian inane rules about what is allowed to go on in just general right. society. And so... To that point, the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, the RGC's commander, so granted, these are the that's like the Praetorian Guard of the Ayatollah. So this what's, is the, like, what's the Praetorian Guard? Uh, like the, the, the personal army of the Ayatollah, of the religious and ultimate leader of, of Iran. And so is that separate from like the Iranian military? Yes, so they have their their military and their police which are separate and then they have the revolutionary guard corps and there's other uh-huh. there's uh, military units that make up this. There's like kind of secret police internal units that make up this, but they report directly to, to the, the Ayatollah. Ayatollah. So okay. uh, to my understanding which is a little bit limited, but there is like the the traditional military uh, and government that does respond and and report to the Ayatollah, but through some other there level is like of a there prime is minister. There are technically elected yeah. representatives in Iran, yeah. right? Like the president is elected. There is a and so, is right. it a, like a council? I believe is, there, there's a whole yeah. There's a, they can, have they do have like without, a, without actually going, very functional political system. I'm not going to comment on if it's good or bad. <laughs> well, that political system, which is actually you know has varying degrees of freedom, but it is technically separate from but ultimately reports to the Ayatollah. Yeah, well, the uh, Ayatollah is still in charge. Right, and and Makes, that's the, the religious leader, the, the theocratic leader. Um, yeah. The IRGC reports is directly to, to Ayatollah. And so he, he's there. They are his, like, personal military, personal security police. Yep. So they're, to your point about young uh, people in this protest, the IRGC's commander estimates the average age of the protesters is 15. Which kind of blows me away, because I don't know if I well, because if it, the average is fifteen, right? That means that there's also a lot of people like under fifteen right. who are part of this, right? You, Can know, you imagine this... being like twelve years old and burning things in the street at a protest. That's, but I mean, if you are if you are 
a woman in Iran and you're you're oppressed, you're forced to wear you know, clothes in public. You're Hijab not educated. Or... You're not educated. Um, you're, you're taught you're inferior. Like eventually something starts to give, I would hope, especially, you know, they have fairly widespread access to the Internet uh, compared to some other authoritarian countries. So. Yeah, the regime is not quite as capable of censorship and sort of blocking access to information, uh, say, like the Chinese government is, which is probably what's, you know, been a large contributor to the sort of widespread nature of these protests because you have more, you have more youth who are more connected and have likely seen more of what other parts of the modern world are like and how other people live and what they possibly could be like. And I just, I want to read this quote cause I think it's like my, my favorite um, slogan that's come out of this um, blood that is spilled unfairly will boil into the end of time runs an old Persian saying now back in fashion. No, back in fashion. That's such, that's such, an that's such a dramatic quote, you know, like, but I love it. It really um, is. So, okay, I think let's 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 speculate here. So, what is a what is a best case, in our opinion, right? Like, I like, what is like a best case scenario outcome for for the protests here? I think, as we said, like? there there is kind of a a valve in Persian society, in Iranian society for a more political freedom because technically the government is separate and elected. And so maybe the Ayatollah steps back and allows a little bit more political and other freedoms via that elected system kind of as a, okay, you know, we'll, we'll step back and we'll let, I, I just don't see that happening, you know, when your whole state, your whole system is built upon a foundation of of these these quote unquote morals. And Yeah, it's hard it's hard to see it develop. I my my mind goes to I wonder if there's any way you can look at how some of the countries in East Asia democratized in like the seventies and eighties and nineties, right? So like South Korea and Taiwan and just just I don't think there's parallels to be drawn there though. Well, because, I'm just thinking in terms because, of if you're like saying like the authoritarian takes a step back, right? But in, in like those the, cases, they were authoritarians backed up by the West, by the U.S. Well, and they had free market capitalisms, and they existed within the. That's not, that's not entirely true. Not all of them were completely free market capitalist societies, economies. They were moving that way they over were, decades. But I mean, like I, Iran, I believe is a capitalistic system. Right, but like. I, I, yeah, I, I guess, but it you was know, so it was it was kind of part of the deal was those systems slowly liberalized under the ages of America, and their whole system was not based on these conservative, um, theocratic values. Like, and they and to be quite honest, they weren't theocracies the same way Iran is. Yeah, and remember, Iran started the current political system and the Ayatollahs began as a revolution to the Shah. Who was backed up by America, and who was quite yeah. brutal to his population? Yeah. So even exactly among the anti Ayatollah factions and the these younger people in Iran, that doesn't make them automatically pro West or pro America. Yeah. They they were raised they they still were taught of the brutalities of of the Shah and and the what was it the seventies when was um 
the revolution was Argo. in 79. 79, yeah, so in the 70s. Yeah. Yeah. Great movie, by the way, Argo. It's a good film. I think I think that's the, you know, like the the knee-jerk sort of naive western take, right? It's like, oh, the protest will spread, revolution, remove the government, become democratic, right? That's sort of the like default naive western optimistic take but the thing is is it's like okay like imagine a world where government is overthrown is it going to be better i don't know and i don't I think, think that's i don't think really... you'll see an overthrow though i don't i don't think it will happen either but i mean we're just saying you know pause like best case scenario here i think that what probably right, like... happens is that and, and you're starting to see this is um but not not enough momentum but a little bit of you know senior clerics and senior business leaders and senior political leaders who are, you know, more or less aligned with Ayatollah's policies understand, but who are understanding a little bit more flexible to what's going on in Iranian society, advise him to pull back and advise him to pull back his IRGC forces that have kind of taken over the enforcement and that are a lot more brutal. Um, because... You know, it, there, there will be a level of brutality that continues. But as these women, very bravely, I might add, continue to protest and continue to continue, uh, like keep this movement going, um, the hope is, I think, that some of these senior leaders, who I might add are all men, will will see the voice of reason and put some pressure on Ayatollah um, to loosen his policies. I don't think you'll ever see regime change, though at least not as a direct result of this. I think that's something for farther in the future as, and in any as case, some of these resentments continue to boil in, in the decades to come. In any case, I think if there were to be regime change, it does have to be a purely internal thing, right? Yeah. I don't think that any of us should be seeking or wanting to be sponsors of regime change in the country because I just think history has shown us it tends to not work out well. And and specifically with it also Iran, well yeah. and the other side of it is that it sort of takes away from the legitimacy of the actions of what these people are doing right now right like it's like you don't want to you don't want to take away from the legitimacy of their own discontent and unhappiness with with their government and the people who are ruling them so my my worry though is that the opposite starts to happen is the the IRGC and the secret police associated with them crack down even harder, and those two hundred deaths escalate to to many more. And you know, certainly, I hope that more people don't die. That's that's terrible. Yeah, I do wonder at what point can the state not react that violently anymore, right? Because there comes a point where it's it, it, you, the state can't just murder every protester, right? Like they can't just start killing people. Every you know, because it's like, I, well, it's like, so don't you? They, then they you can, lose, but there you lose the, the whole. You lose really, everything. All of your legitimacy out the window. You lose, like, you lose the country, right? Like, you're throwing the the baby out with the bathwater. I, I would hesitate to say absolutely that they won't do that because remember, this is a very brutal, theocratic, autocratic uh, country and ruler who has a very firm grip over society. I would hope so, um, but. You know, I th I think there is a, a small probability that there is a very brutal reaction if these if these protests continue, and I, I hope that the, that doesn't happen. But I think the real question is: Will the does the regime think that there'll be an even more violent counter reaction 
to to them to them killing protesters. Down that capacity. Yeah. yeah. And I don't I don't have an answer for that. I'm, I'm I don't worried either. at the answer for that. But I think the I think guess that I guess we can kind of end with there. Like my you know I hope that they can come to some sort of positive development for women's rights and civil rights in in Iran and hopefully more people don't have to die for that to happen Um, and I guess we're going to see but support the uh, I support the protests and those brave brave women brave kids I mean I still just like 15 year old and protesting like like 10 or 11 (laughs) or 12 that's wild that is absolutely crazy so well, well, anyway, I think that wraps it. Do yeah. we, let's do you want to do rapid fire. Anything funny going on in global affairs? Uh, I think Liz Truss is about to jump off the uh, oh, Liz, bridge. Liz Truss. I saw something that was like <laughs> Liz Truss has had the shortest grip on power in British politics because if you, she's been in top power like what thirty days, literally like a month, a month, and a good like twenty days of that or something was the dealing with the Queen's death. So like and like the only like the. The the only authority she had over British politics was like for one week. Her her uh, finance minister, the one who promoted the mini budget, has already resigned. Smoked. Yep. <laughs> Dude's out. Um, I just like you know. He lasted it's almost a shame as long too. as a Trump chief of staff. I know. <laughs> <laughs> that was a good one. <laughs> oh, we're, we're breaking things. Yeah, we're breaking things here. Uh, let's see what, what else. else? Is um, there anything funny going on in American politics right now? I. I, I, I am just amused by the Elon Musk Twitter thing, and I'm not even going to go into detail about what stage it's at because it's back and forth, it's tit for tat. But I, whatever the outcome of that is, this is, this is comedy and drama in the extreme. In my it's, opinion, it's, it's reality TV for right men who are into finance, <laughs> like. Or, or tech, or like, like yeah, like it's, or have it's, strong opinions about anything. It's like high drama. It's like an HBO show. Twitter is. What know. have you done this week? Yeah. <laughs> what have you done this week? The other thing too is is in tech news is um. Mark Zucky, Zuckerberg. Uh, Who said Zucky? I say Zucky. What, are you okay? Are you a lizard person? Uh, well, you know, Zucky and I go way back. No, Zucky is is pushing meta and the idea of like virtual reality so hard, and it's like it, it's so desperate, and everybody sees it, and he wants it to be a thing, and he wants his big bet to change Facebook's direction to kind of pay off, and it's not there yet, and everybody says it's not there, and I just it's it's funny to see Mark Zuckerberg struggle. Struggle. I think everybody who's clowning on Zuck right now is going to eat their socks in like no, ten years. Bullshit. Yeah, I, th- I think they are all going. VR to. is overhyped. I think. I think AR they're... on the other art of um, sorry, yeah, augmented reality, very artificial under- reality. You mean gaming? <laughs> or a gamer? Oh, Call of Duty. You're so weird. Uh, augmented reality, so that where you like see stuff in the real world and it helps you with your daily life. Yeah, I think that's undervalued. You'll see like glasses and contact lenses and, and cool stuff come out of that. But virtual reality, I think, like the, where you're fully immersive, overhyped is going to have some gaming and like conferencing use cases. But we're not going to go full. Uh, what's the full ready, metaverse? No, full Ready, ready player, player one. one. Yeah, I don't think that'll really happen. To, to a large scale. You're, so you're, you're bearish on the metaverse. I'm saying 
I'm not bearish because I think there is like a lot of cool applications and there's going to be some cool stuff that comes out of it, but it's overvalued. Mm. People people are hyping it up more than it's going to be helpful or interesting. I don't. I feel like at this point it's not really like overhyped. Maybe over discussed because it, it's just not there developmentally. Because of Zucky. I don't think it's because of Zucky. I I still think I think I think. Like I said, everyone who's like hypercritical of him running, they're all gonna eat their socks in ten years. I think I think if he's we gonna, aren't at war with China over Taiwan. He's gonna pull up well, ten years would be twenty thirty two, so at that point in time it'd probably be oh well Well yeah. We might want to like we, we might have like an we might have lost the war at that point and just go full escapism if I can speak. Maybe maybe China's strategy is just like did you did you see the uh did you see the chart this week of uh, obesity rates in states across the US? No, I don't know if I want to hear this. It's a, it's a it's bad it's it's a bad chart. It's a really sad chart. Basically, it's a straight line up for the oh last like 70 years. Maybe their plan is just to like wait us out long enough that we're too fat to do anything to where like in wally the people in wally where we can't <laughs> yeah. get up from our chairs yeah they're that's that's what they're doing like they're just like you fat fucks all right so if you're listening to this podcast go outside and go for a run or go something. touch some grass yeah <laughs> do do be, be a patriot and go for a run <laughs> <laughs> protect america from china yeah <laughs> it's like that movie what was that like red red star red, red scare red no like where they like North Korea, like, invades the California coast. It's a really bad movie. Red Wings, Red Star, I don't Whatever. Know. Anyway. I think I know it. It's like Nick Jonas or something, isn't it? Nick Jonas? Yeah, I'm, he I'm is. I'm pretty right. sure it's a Jonas brother that's, like, the film. Who's <laughs> 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 just searching Red Star? <laughs> yeah. That didn't blow up what I wanted the it CIA to. The CIA has flagged your account for being a communist. I support much of Russia. <laughs> You've seen my vodka. You ever think of, uh, you didn't play Call of Duty, but <laughs> one of the things I think that's funny, so culturally about Americans is, is like people who are in our generation, so if you're probably anywhere like 18 to like late 20s right now, a good perception or, or a good percent of your perception of, of foreigners was shaped by like your time playing video games as an American youth. And so that's like nikolai from call of duty <laughs> just like being a drunk russian that's <laughs> just like ridiculous so well anyway i think on that note yeah i, think um, we'll, we'll I am james the anti call of duty uh host and this is yeah thanks for joining us andrew here your local compassionate capitalist so <laughs> you have a much better tagline you thought of this prepared ahead of time Next time I'll have a tagline, okay? <laughs> All right, we're going to we're going to call it here. Transmission and